Why does he care so much about this crazy dude with the bad eyeliner? Good morning and welcome to episode 16 of Did You Do Your Homework, the podcast where we connect academic ideas to popular culture, assign you homework, and make it fun again. My name is Martha Sullivan. I am one of your lovely co-hosts, and this morning I am a bee strangler and uh, mostly a coffee drinker, but in my spare time I'm also a youth librarian. I am joined by... I'm Pete Romberg. I, too, am a coffee drinker this morning, although I'm uh, someone having very strange dreams because I'm getting caught up on the second half of Twin Peaks The Return. And it turns out when you binge watch, like, three episodes of that, you get really weird dreams. I've heard that, yeah. <laughs> and I'm Corey Ruig, uh, a non-educator, I think maybe a first for the podcast, maybe not, uh, but... I am coffeeless this morning as I have been just kind of up and about, and uh, it passed my mind to pick up some coffee this morning. So, but typically I, I am a coffee drinker. I am also, um, by profession, a software developer, um, which isn't all that entertaining and, and cool, but you know, I make the world go round. It I like to think. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. If you, uh, you. had not, if you had not guessed, Corey is our special guest this. Uh, this episode, and we are delighted to have him. Uh, so we like to start every episode by uh, presenting to you, our listener, our pop culture credentials. These are the last pieces of media that we have consumed, unedited for your entertainment. Um, Pete, why don't you start us off? What's the last thing that you experienced in the world of pop culture? All right. Well, I had to pause this literally as we began this episode. Um, I have been listening to NPR First Listen has a live show currently streaming as of this recording of The National performing their new album, Sleep Well Beast, live in Philadelphia. Um, it's a phenomenal live show. It's a great album by the sound of it. Uh, it just came out on Friday. The live show is great. It ends with a couple old classics that we all know and love, and I super enjoy The National. Um, I'm frankly surprised it's still streaming. I thought that they would uh, end the stream after the album came out, but it's still around, so I'm going to keep listening to it until they stop me from being able to listen to it. I confess I don't listen to nearly as much NPR as I probably should. Well, And this is a definite, like... It's NPR music, and it's just a, a band that I love. So it's NPR only tangentially. I always like how how like how many unique like music uh, albums they end up getting that are specific to the, to their platform, which is always kind of fun. Corey, yes. What is the last piece of media that you have consumed? So the last piece of media I consumed is a food documentary if if the uh if the pun isn't isn't there uh it's called in, oh, the, in, okay. in defense of food thank you pete uh and it's a it's a pbs documentary by um michael pollan who's done a who's done a lot of books on food and he even has a, a whole like a mini documentary series on netflix um as well um i think this is one of his first 
food documentaries before he did the Netflix, um, the Netflix one, which kind of goes into more of a elemental style of food, like the fire, wind, air, and earth of food or whatever. Um, and this one's kind of just a plain document. Um, it's a little bit preachy in the way that some, some of these food documentaries can be, but he, he, he really tries to drive a home a point that there isn't, um, there isn't like a, we shouldn't try to put ourselves in little cylinders when it comes to food. And it's more of kind of an exploratory of like, we should be eating, you know, avoid the middle section of the grocery store. And then, you know, really just try to make food real in a part of your life. Um, and it just, it, it hits weird and kind of more abstract tones than some of the other um, documentaries about food on there, which, which are very much like negative towards like a particular sect of food, whether it's fat or sugar or carbs or, you know, whatever. And it's, it's kind of a whole, it's more of a holistic viewpoint and just kind of, I like his kind of speaking style and it really is kind of an interesting, uh, watch. Uh, was this documentary, um, in conjunction with whichever book he had that came out where the thesis was, uh, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Like exactly. That... Okay. I think this is the, I think this is the, the documentary version of that book essentially, but it, it's a, it's a pretty good, um, philosophy because he unlike a lot of other like health food things he doesn't vilify he doesn't vilify completely meat all he just says is let's not eat as much because it's probably not great for you and there's better things to be eating it's actually it's really interesting that uh this is your that you were watching that i was just at um the high school for the district that i am a librarian in yesterday talking about some nonfiction books to a couple of english classes and one of the ones i picked was michael pollan's the omnivore's dilemma hmm. and it was a pretty easy sell um and then it turned out that we didn't actually have a copy in our library <laughs> so i uh, i spoke to the librarian who buys nonfiction, and i said hey i just talked about this book do you mind purchasing it and it sounds like at least in terms of circulation numbers pollen has kind of fallen out of favor in uh you know favor of i guess quote unquote hotter food writers so it's cool that he's still I guess being talked about because I I like the way that he talks about food. It, it never, even though he's telling me to eat better, it never feels like he's making me feel guilty for the things that I eat. Yeah, I think that's that's the general thing I get from his documentaries. Is he's more about propping up the good stuff than it is about like shaming you for like, I ate a Twinkie the other day. Oh no, like well, yeah, you shouldn't do that. But you know, there's better things to eat than Twinkies. So my pop culture credential today is a book. I've only read about 15 pages of it, but I'm very much looking forward to it. It just came out this last week called Crash Override by Zoe Quinn. Uh, this is the... So people may recognize Zoe Quinn's name as being the sort of patient zero for Gamergate. Uh, she is the... She was the epicenter of that whole mess. I mean, that's, we don't swear on this podcast, so I can't use as strong of language <laughs> as I might want to. Uh, but this is her account of everything that happened to her about how a toxic breakup led to her uh, mass uh, abuse online by 
thousands of uh, trolls and strangers on the internet, how it turned into uh, a, a nightmare that took over like the entire gaming industry, and also how she uh, fought what was happening to her uh, legally and also um, like in public perception. Uh, Crash Override is the name of the a support center that she helped found for people who are the target of online abuse and trolling uh, so that other people would not have to go through the nightmares that she did while Gamergate was going on. Uh, I'm very excited to read it so far. It is, I mean, like I said, I'm only 15 pages in and it's already like horrifying and heartbreaking. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Uh, but I think it's an important story that people read and understand, especially considering how much information, was, how much misinformation was going on about Zoe, about what happened to her, and about, I mean, at a fundamental level, what the whole Gamergate controversy was actually about. So I'm hoping that people read it. I'm hoping that it makes a difference. Uh, Zoe is clearly already working to make a difference in the online world. Um and I'm just, I'm excited to be able to read it and support her. Cool. I, I wrote a, a blog post for the blog a couple episodes ago, which would be months ago, um, that, that touched on Gamergate and, and all of that. So uh, go go check that out too. I'm sure that this is a certainly more knowledgeable, my my knowledge was based on Wiki, so. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm actually pretty in the dark on Gamergate, but I know that you know, from the secondhand stuff that there was always two sides to whatever story. And I, I felt like the internet got a hold of one side of any story on that and just unfairly victimized, you know, her and everything, no matter what she may or may not have done. I, there, there's a personal violation that comes and it's unfair to women in the industry in general. I mean, even on some of my other video game podcasts, the women on those podcasts always talk about like, Yep, I got trolled by a guy like every day, and just it's kind of heartbreaking to hear all just even as a systemic problem in in general. And then her case is prob is probably the spearhead for all of the all of the underbelly work that's been all the all underbelly things that have been going on before. Yeah, I just real fast. We don't we're not going to spend too long on this because we haven't yeah. even gotten into the main part of our episode oh. yet. Um, but. I, I do sort of bristle at the idea that the story has two sides um, because it's just sort of fundamentally like the whole it's about ethics and gaming journalism was founded on something that was not true. Uh, there was an accusation that she slept with a reviewer for a good review of her game. Um, the reviewer in question never reviewed her game. So mm. in that whole that whole issue is is a non-starter <laughs> like it, it, it simply did not happen. So this, this, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. That's great. <laughs> um, I'm, at, I'm at, like I said, I was kind of in the dark on Gamergate, but I know the underpilling. I know like a lot of the like, just through listening to other podcasters and stuff that there's a lot of trash that goes to women, and it's clearly unfair. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm no one. Like I I am not a game reviewer i don't make games i'm not famous and even i just by virtue of being admittedly female on the internet like get uh you know not a lot i don't because i'm no one but i still get 
abusive stuff thrown at me from time to time. So someday I'll tell you guys about the story about how I accidentally attracted the attention of the Overwatch fandom. And that was a fun hour of my life. Uh, But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. So today we are talking about how you can't go home again. We are going to be touching on some uh, important questions like how do we define the act of going home? Uh, What is home for the various characters of the homework we assigned? How can home be constructed? Constructed or construed? Either, both. Okay. Uh, how do characters? How do our characters react to returning home, and what causes the inability to return home? Is it the character or us who's changed? Is it home that has changed, or both? Uh, before we do a deep dive into these questions, let's just go around the table and remind our audience of the homework that we assigned and how we felt about it. I know that for more of us than is usual, this was our first time either reading, watching, or playing our particular homework assignments, which I'm very excited about. Uh, Pete, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, I've been trying to find a way to get a Terry Pratchett Discworld book into our homeworks for a couple episodes now, and I finally landed on The Fifth Elephant, uh, one of my favorites. Um, Captain Commander Vimes of the Night's Watch in Ankh-Morpork, a fantasy city, uh, is sent to be a diplomat in a faraway land that's basically like Germany, but with werewolves and vampires and dwarves. Um, So Germany. So Germany, yeah. Uh, Shenanigans ensue. This might be my favorite Discworld book. In general, I really deeply love the the Night's Watch books and Commander Vimes in particular. And I think that The Fifth Elephant may be just... Like, if I had to pick one Discworld novel, I think it would be this one. <laughs> I'm, uh, much like we'll get into later Winter Soldier, this is certainly in my top five, and it might be my number two. I'm not sure if I'm going to put it at my number one, but it's one of my top Discworld books. Um Across the board. And like you, I love the Vimes books incredibly. Yeah. My my favorite, like, series of Discworld books are the Tiffany Aching books. But if, like I said, if I had to just pick one. Um, I just, I, I love the the intricacies that you get on, because you're, you're looking at several different, I, okay, going to back up. What I think The Fifth Elephant does is showcase one of the things that Terry Pratchett does best which is not only world building, but people building. Like he, he creates whole cultures. So it's not enough for him that he has vampires in his books, but that he also has like very defined, a very defined culture for those vampires. And I think that the fifth elephant showcases the widest variety of cultures that he created and developed for his books because you have the vampires and you have the werewolves and you have the dwarves and you have sam vimes who's a culture unto himself but also sort of a mouthpiece for the ankh morpork city culture and just how it's how all of those intersect uh ends up being i think a very because it's not a very long book but it ends up being a very complex book in terms of the ideas that he's talking about Mm -hmm. which is classic for for mid and later Discworld books is he has a couple big ideas big themes that he wants to hit 
and he does a really great job at hitting them. And uh, my confession time, I have never read any uh, Discworld books, uh, and on top of that, any uh, Terry Pratchett books. Uh, so I know Martha the Librarian's probably... Or, or books in general. Shaking her fist. Yeah, I don't, apparently I don't read books in general, too. <laughs> that's a, that's Do you a read comics? Um, no, I don't, actually. Um, oh, I, I typically Dude. read more articles and... Um, if oh, I well, that's fine. Books, yeah, I read. I read. I'm not, I'm not illiterate. I'm practically an illiterate, though, is the joke. <laughs> but... I'll speak to my I'll speak to my um, interaction with the fifth elephant. And I, I will attest it is. In, I was really worried about having you know coming cold into the into the Discworld book um, that I wouldn't know anyone and that I wouldn't know the world or anything. And I gotta say, after page fifty or so, it was a non-question. Like I I knew Vimes, I knew the um, Bar Morpok, I knew the um, Uber world and the venture that we were going on, and then some of the side characters started coming into place, and then, you know, kind of visualizing the society of the werewolves and the vampires and the dwarves especially was, was in, you know, I all my fears were dispelled, and, and I was quite relieved, actually. So, D Discworld books in general tend to be the kind of things where you, in theory, can pick up any of them in any order and get a good story out of it but you'll get more out of it if you have if you've read more of of that particular character's arc um as i was rereading this i was a little concerned that you'd be like who is this what is this what's going on um but i'm glad that that was basically a non-issue after the first uh, couple pages yeah but yeah, in terms of how this one was a particularly good fit for our theme this week um Uberwald is a country that several characters on the Night's Watch originally come from. So you have Angua, who's a werewolf, and you have Carrot, who's a <laughs> is a human person raised as a dwarf. And what sidebar? What I really enjoy and appreciate about this, um, in going back to my original point, is that I think it it does a lot of work to show you how like calling yourself a dwarf is as much cultural cultural as it is genetic. So even though genetically Carrot is a human, he has been raised as a dwarf, he's drenched in dwarf culture, he is for all intents and purposes a dwarf. He can hazak his kazakh or whatever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you also have Cherry, who is a dwarf in the both the physical sense and the cultural sense. Um, am I missing any? In terms of characters who go, who travel from Ankh-Morpork to go back to Uberwald. I think that's it. Oh, oh no. Uh, well, Detritus. Uh, yeah. The troll. <laughs> of course, my favorite. <laughs> Although I really wouldn't say he's going home, at least not to uh, uh, Uberwald, or to the, uh, the town he's in. The Bonk. city. True. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bayonk. <laughs> uh, and this is where this is where things start to get interesting, because I think that what we, um, you know, how this book relates to our theme is that all, for all three of these characters, Uberwald is where they're from, but it is absolutely no longer their home. Yes. Uh, this is the, you know, the first case that we're going to talk about today, where you have three people who um, left Uberwald for one reason or another, uh, whether it was because they initially did not feel at home there or for other reasons, and now at this point have gotten, you know, have been so changed by their time in 
the uh, the larger city of Ankh-Morpork that they don't fit into the culture of um, of Uberworld anymore. I think actually, weirdly, Carrot may be the one who fits in the best. But that's kind of because he fits in everywhere. That's one of his character traits. That's true. He also is the one who didn't leave Ankh-Morpork, or he didn't leave Uberwald originally because he felt out of place there. Uh, for both Angua and Cherry, I think they, they left for the city because... Uh, they, they could be themselves. They could be themselves there. Like, Angua's family is horrible. She comes from, like, blue blood, terrible werewolves who hunt humans for sport. Um, and you find out that Cherry is you know, from the very conservative dwarf culture, and she is actually, uh... Well, she's a she, which is unusual in dwarf culture to present as female. Right. So she and Angua were both able to leave the very restrictive, conservative uh, environments in Uberwald uh, for the city where they could be themselves more, and Carrot left to, you know, go pursue his destiny or whatever, but he didn't... He didn't leave originally because Uberwald did not feel like home, uh, which I think is why... Now I'm just talking in circles. Um, <laughs> Should we go on to the next homework and leave the uh, the deeper questions for getting to the deeper questions? Sure. Cool. Uh, I'll go next. Okay. So for my assignment i assigned you all captain america the winter soldier the 2014 masterpiece of marvel cinema uh directed by the russo brothers and starring chris evans amongst others uh this is the follow-up to captain america the first avenger which sees steve rogers sort of displaced out of time in our current uh current timeline so he is struggling with the fact that he's a 1950s soldier in a 2000s world. Um, and while he is dealing with that, uh, discovers that Hydra, the Nazi agency, is still alive and kicking and controlling his uh, World War II bestie, Bucky. Um, so he gets to go out and try and save not only uh, S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, but also kind of the world and his best friend. I thought this was a really interesting uh, pick for You Can't Go Home Again. Um, Steve obviously is displaced, uh, but I think there are a lot of other characters, too, who are grappling with that issue. Um, uh, Black Widow obviously has her own baggage um, that she is dealing with. Um, even, in a way, uh, the Falcon is sort of is is struggling with, you know, coming back to civilian life um, after being a Falcon pilot in the military. Um, and then you have Bucky, who's brainwashed. Um, he sort of, his can't-go-home-again story comes up a little bit more in Civil War than in this, but there was sort of the scene at the end uh, where he's looking at all the old um, uh, World War II uh, Captain America stuff and, and dealing with that. So we, we sort of hit that topic in a lot of angles here. Um, and it's a great movie. There, there, there's also an argument to be made about um, Nick Fury in this, in that 
you know, he, I was just thinking about that. And, and, you know, he makes a lot of mentions back to like him in New York and how to, how he survived to get to where he was um, and the friends he's made and and the people he's trusted and that kind of leaving him in a way. Um, And so in a, in a, in a weird way, um, he's kind of got the opposite of leaving home, but, um, and then what, you know, and then kind of the tail end of the movie is, is what does it mean to come back to familiarity or is it possible? Well, and I just real fast, I want to mention Steve's adorable list at the beginning of the movie of all of the things that he needs to uh, investigate uh, in the world of pop culture. Uh, But also, I want to talk about how the movie, you know, obviously it is sort of about the specific um, example of Steve being from the 1950s and or 1940s and not being able to go back to the time that he is comfortable with. Um, But also with the introduction of Sam Wilson talking about how veterans in general are changed by their experiences. And even when they come home, like Sam is coming home to a time that is familiar to him. um, But it's, you know, he is obviously changed by his combat experience and how that kind of changes his perception of home. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which is always why I have seen uh, Steve's like obsessive need to go after uh, to find Bucky. Like it's not just the guilt that he feels over thinking that Bucky has been dead for this whole time, but Bucky's now the only piece that Steve has of his like recognizable home. Like Bucky is someone that he grew up with. Bucky is has become kind of the symbol of home to Steve, which is why. You know, he through through this movie and then again into Civil War uh, is so obsessive about his need to rescue Bucky and rehabilitate him and get him back. Which was why I thought of the movie in the first place for this particular episode. Mm-hmm. So real fast, Corey, you said yeah. that this is your first time having seen this movie. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and not in unlike the uh, Discworld books, this is more just a gap in my uh, movie going experience. Um, well, I'm 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 actually curious about your experience in, in watching Civil War without having seen this movie first. Like, did that kind of impact the emotional resonance of civil war without having this piece or were you able to kind of infer the events of this movie or at least the emotional like touchstones of this movie uh, in the rest of your Marvel cinematic experience? (laughs) Yeah. So I've seen, I've seen all the Avengers and, um, and all the other Captain America ones, except for this, um, which I think are the big, the biggest tie-ins, especially shield and all that. But um, seeing Civil War, I mean, it wasn't terribly too much of a leap. Um, it was kind of like a, and I had some help from people who were like, oh yeah, Bucky was in, in Winter Soldier and now he's badass and stuff. And, um, and they do a really good job of reintroducing him in Civil War for that matter. They kind of have a little fight scene at the beginning where he kind of, he's re-indoctrinated, I believe, or something along the, I, I, I'm maybe misrecalling Civil War a little bit, but um, and so they do reintroduce Bucky very well. Going back to watching Winter Soldier, um, you know, I got to say the only thing that was really ruined for me was, oh, it's Bucky behind the mask. And I don't know if it, that was a big reveal for other people or if, you know, people. I, I guys... don't think it was that surprising for anybody. 
Except for Steve. <laughs> yeah. Steve was surprised. Well, and anybody who doesn't know who Bucky is and who Winter Soldier is. I'm pretty sure the advertising around the movie wasn't all that coy about it, though. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Corey, tell us about Gone Home. Yeah, so Gone Home is uh, my homework that I assigned, and it's incredibly um, upfront about its main themes, uh, Going Home, um, <laughs> in the title. But it's a 2013 video game made by um, the, uh, the Ful- Fulbright Games out of, I think, Oregon, Oregon, Pacific Northwest, if nothing else. Um, so that should help understand why some of the themes and, and weather patterns in the game are what they are. But it the, the game itself starts off in a very nostalgic 90s setting um, where you are the main character. You're, you're, you're actually playing a character named Katie um, in the first person. So you'd you never really see her face in a 3D model standpoint. I think there's some portraits where you get to see who you um, see Katie and the family and stuff within the house. But um, other than that, the the what you look like and who you are is less important to the story, uh, or what you look like is less important to the story, unlike other video games. Uh, anyway, the story starts off with you're coming back from an epic college uh, semester abroad in Europe, backpacking through Europe. Um, and in the meantime, your family has actually moved um, to this desolate, um, kind of in the middle of nowhere house location. Um, the pretenses under which are kind of murky and, and at least not known at the beginning. Um, and it's really just an exploration game. Um, the idea being you stumble upon the house and the very first thing you do is find a key to open your door, um, your front door. Um, and scattered throughout the game is a bunch of little quirks and little things. And it really centers around the idea of something's weird and off because nobody's home. What happened? I think is the central premise of the of the game is what happened. Um, and, you know, there's a main storyline in, in the game uh, that involves your sister, Sam, um, and then uh, her experiences as uh, a little sit now she's an only child essentially because you're you've gone off to college and dealing with um, her parents and new schools and old friends and new friends um, and you're really just trying you're really discovering her story um, throughout this adventure into the house and figuring out what exactly um, happened because as, as you as the main character you you stumble upon the house and and what you would expect a, a warm, inviting family to see you home after six or nine months away is nowhere to be found. Um, and so that kind of kicks off the game. And it, it really deals with the idea of coming home and everything's different. So, okay. I want to <laughs> preface this. I want to preface this by saying that I thought the story was really beautiful. Although I was about three minutes into the game and I did have to Google whether or not this was a horror game. Because oh. if it was going to be, I wanted to be prepared for that. It is not. Um, there are just a lot of flickering lights and weird sounds. Uh, I am not, and I, I understand that I am in the minority and that this game had a lot of critical acclaim and has been very well reviewed. Um, and as I said, I thought the story was beautiful. I am not convinced that this was the best format to tell this story in. Um, I frequently found myself distracted from 
so so the, the the way it works is that you you know you turn over everything in your house you're looking for uh objects that you can pick up and interact with and sometimes you unlock journal entries uh or like i guess they're voice letters almost from sam to katie uh so you're you're looking to unlock those pieces and then uh as you fill in uh, what the story that Sam is telling you, it kind of reveals uh, the story of the game. And frequently I found myself distracted from what Sam was telling me because I was like, have I, have I tried to pick over everything in this bookshelf? Have I thought ah. that, like, have I found everything in this room? Like I was, I was just the, the exploration element I thought was distracting from the story of the game and then I ultimately did not feel that there was all that much gameplay at all. So I was a little bit like, this could have just been a short story or a novel. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, I on I I struggled with the fact that I paid fifteen dollars for this game. It took me three hours and was mostly frustrating because I didn't know if I had like found everything and then I couldn't remember what the, the voice entries had told me because I hadn't been paying attention to them as I was like rooting through these rooms. But also this may just be my deficiencies as a game player rather than anything inherently wrong with the game itself. No, you, I mean you definitely have a good good point. This this game is kind of a um, a terrible gift to give to someone, especially if they're a completionist. Um, and, and if they, it, I think the best way to approach this game is definitely not in a traditional gameplay. Get the high score, get all the tokens, um, and I think it's more trying to discover story through environment. And so and so it's really tempting to like turn over every book and and the way that's definitely how I played at first. And I think it took me more than three hours to play it because I would turn over everything and do everything. Um, and my second playthrough, it just kind of dawned on me. It's like, well, not everything is important, but some things are. And I think that's part of a little bit of the gameplay is to figure out what are the jarring things um, that are that are, the game is trying to lead you to. Like the staircase going up, it is is a very, you know, forward thing. And, and picking up a tape and putting it into the... Um, uh, the stereo is kind of a fun little thing to get to get a theme sense. Um, but one of the other things I think that the game does really well is there's other stories with um, the mom, um, the dad, uh, and then the previous owner, uncle slash history of the house is a whole nother kind of sect of creepydom um, that isn't really intended to be the primary focus, but is more supplementary to the oh, what is this place? What is this new house kind of story? So, Well, and ultimately, I think I felt resentful because I felt like I was missing... By the time I finished the game, I realized that I had kind of approached it in the incorrect manner. Because um, I think that you're right. I think that the game is almost making a point about how we play games and how we approach story in the terms of gameplay because like there's a whole lot of stuff that's not important um and at the end i felt a little bit resentful that i had spent like time combing through all of these things but then not actually absorbed any of the story 
and when, when it's really the story that was the focus <laughs> yeah i very quickly i really enjoyed it um it was very meditative for me i don't play a lot of games this is unlike any game i have played which it seems like we're all sort of like circling around i i finished the game without completing everything and and when that happened like you click on the last book and it goes to the credits or whatever i was like no 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 i'm i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna go finish <laughs> oh see by the time i got to the attic i was like is this it am i done are you, are you sure <laughs> I, I, like, um, I, I which... got to the attic and i hadn't like opened her locker and i was like oh no no i i need to find out what's in that locker i need to find out you know i sound so whiny and i don't want to give the impression that i didn't enjoy the story of the game because I did very much. I just didn't enjoy the gameplay. I wish that I, I don't know. I wish that there had been another way to experience that story. And even as I'm saying that I, I realize that that would sort of defeat the purpose of it being a game in the first place. Well, there's the video. Um, you could watch the, the playthrough video. I don't know if that would change your, your take. Cause then it's just someone else playing it. And then it's almost like watching a movie. It might, um, because yeah, Corey, I don't think uh, I don't think that the the side narratives about the dad and the mom. I don't think that those are secondary at all. I think that those are um, as important as the sort of front and center obvious story about Sam, because it's all kind of contributing to this idea that you know we how much do we really know about people like how how well can we know somebody uh, particularly somebody who's keeping keeping secrets like this family is oh yeah this... I, I, th I think it's all very much of a piece so i want to i want to lead off um our general discussion with just a simple definition of how do we define the act of going home you know we we have themed this episode you can't go home again um which i think is actually a more nebulous question than we might think of it as so how how are we all thinking of that phrase what does it mean to us to to be able to go home there's a great line in uh the fifth elephant that cherry says to vimes which is uh, every dwarf dreams of going back home when he's old enough and starting up a little mine uh, and then vime asks even those born in ankh-morpork and cherry's response is home can mean all sorts of things so i think that that's sort of it ties into this that like going home might be physically returning to your hometown to your to the your your parents home that you grew up in what have you but it also might mean returning to your family or returning to your culture or having that like going back to the old country whatever it might be um i'm defining it for myself about as broadly as possible um <laughs> in in Gone Home, uh, Katie is not returning to her old family home. She's returning to her family, which is in a new physical location. So in that case, like she's going home to to family. With the in in Fifth Elephant, it's the same sort of thing. You're they're returning more to their cultures and in some cases to their families rather necessarily than returning to a physical location. Captain America, as we've said, there's lots of different characters returning home in various ways, but it, it all, some of it is physical, but a lot of it is returning to either a cultural place or maybe even a, a mindset place. Um, Sam in, in uh, Captain America would be the, like, returning to civilian life. 
Yeah, I forget the uh I forget the name of this well I forget where the song is from. I think it's from a musical. Uh but there is a song called A House Is Not a Home, which I think is a fairly easy way to sum up this question. Mm-hmm. Like you have the place where you live, which is only home in so far as you know, you emotionally are invested in it being your home. Like I have the house that I grew up in. Is it currently my home? Well, not really. Um, it was at one time. It is not any longer. I don't know. I don't have any, I don't have any neat capping for that <laughs> statement. It's just, it's just a cool song that I think, uh, you know, helps illustrate your point, Pete, that um, home is less a physical place uh, than it is sort of an idea and and for you, since your parents still live in that house, though, when you return to it, um, you know, you are like you're going back to your family, all the rest. So in some ways, it might still be a home for you. Whereas, you know, when they eventually move, it would literally just be a house that you used to live in. Um, yeah. And so now we can do double duty, but at some point it, it will stop doing that. True. Yeah. Uh- I'll define how um, the act of going home, at least how, the way I see it. Um, I kind of view it as a seeking familiar comfort, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in in the way that seeking comfort would be like finding, getting to your hotel and laying down on a nice couch and you feel like at ease from travel. That's not seek, That's not going home as much as going to your parents' house and like laying on your childhood bed and like, it's a familiar comfort kind of um, sense of going home. And I think um, Gone Home seeks that where Katie is trying to fig- trying to reconnect with um, her family um, throughout the seeking out the house. And then Captain America is, um, you know, one, one of the things he's, he's seeking for, he's actually trying to seek um, something familiar in his current world. Um, and I think Bucky is his kind of, familiar comfort as we see um you know he has flashbacks to bucky and and you know finding you know being locked out of his house and the camaraderie they have um in a lot of the flashbacks and then you know when he he goes and finds agent carter um and you know there's a comfort him with with him there um and and him then being ripped away and having to do all the other things um and then in the fifth elephant um i think seeking comfort seeking familiar comfort, um, could be maybe back actually, um, where, um, Sherry, um, might be the best example of it where, um, she, I think at the end is actually donning non, um, feminine clothes, um, at the coronation and kind of has come to terms with, well, this is where I grew up and this is, I, I totally am me outside of here, but this is what I am. You know, I can be this when I'm home because this is comfortable and this is what um, I come to terms with, I think. I think that's a good example of that. That's a really good point. Yeah. I, I like the, the Sherry bit especially because you're right. She She's like rebelling against dwarf culture, but at the end is like, nope, this is like, I, I can be me, but also I can do dwarf culture when I need to. Um, and that's sort of an important moment so in relation to that how do we think our our various main characters are defining home how and and also i 
I don't remember if I wrote this down as a separate question, but how do we think the idea of home changes for them? Because it sort of necessarily has to, if we're talking about, you know, they, for what one reason or another, which we've already sort of gone over, uh, they're unable to return to their homes. And so they have to kind of redefine what home means. Hmm. Did I cap that in a way that made sense or did I? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I mean, this is where, this is where you put that uh, quote, uh, Pete, from uh, The Fifth Elephant about, you know, every dwarf dreams of going back home. And clearly on some level, culturally for dwarfs in, in this book, uh, home is the idea of you know, retiring to the little mine in the mountains. Like, that's the idea of home that they are uh, attached to. Whereas for uh, for Cheery, like, her idea of home is is not that. It, it Culturally, she's been told that it should be. But I think her idea of home becomes, like, being the, uh, the forensic scientist in the Night's Watch. And so when she goes to Uberwald, like, her idea of going home is going back to the city where she can resume her work and you know be the be the the she that she is comfortable being but and that to me sort of segues into into the question we have about like the inability to return home who is it who changes um because i think you're right that like sherry and angua and mostly those two have created a new home for themselves in the city watch and in ankh-morpork um, so going back to their physical origin location is not going home, um, but they do both come to terms with how they have changed and in a way how their their old beginning point has changed too. Um, the dwarves culturally are slowly changing and becoming a little more accepting of new ideas, and, and that helps Cherry sort of reconcile herself with with that dwarven culture that she obviously feels a part of but also felt distinct from um now she can feel both like a part of it and a part of the city watch and so that's a case where i think it's home like she has changed faster than her home has but her home is also changing catching up with her tying this in a little to gone home i feel like sam is somebody who isn't at home um, like, th that her house isn't a home for her. Um, she has obviously changed far past what what the rest of her family is into. Um, it's the mid-90s. She's, you know, discovering that she's a lesbian, and that was, even in the Pacific Northwest, not super, uh, you know, looked upon favorably. Um, so she, she's really struggling with the fact that she doesn't belong at home, and and so, you know, she ends up leaving. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that Sam's story is kind of about her ultimately realizing that she has not yet found her home. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, by the time we realize what is kind of going on with her, she has left to go and find that. Like, she is still defining what home means because clearly this this new house that, she, that her family has moved her into um, and even... Like, her her parents are not really doing it for her. Like, she hasn't really discovered what what her home is. Yeah, and 
And just to carry on that, I think one of the the examples of that is I think one of the storylines in Gone Home is she reconnects with an old childhood neighborhood friend um, since they had ever after they had moved. And um, one of the things is that that's kind of a a small little example of like she's trying to figure out what exactly it means like what what is home for me? Is it my old friends? Is it you know am I actually is home back where we lived before? Um, and I think she comes to the realization that like, oh no, I don't, you know, playing video games with, you know, uh, Charlie or whoever the, the kid's name was that, you know, she's like, oh, we play video games, but that eh, wasn't all that fun. And, and kind of, she, I think Sam comes to, comes to the realization like, well, no, that's not where I'm comfortable. Um, you know, I'm uncomfortable for a different reason than just moving to a new house. I'm uncomfortable because I'm figuring out who I am and, and coming, you know, not, you know, coming to terms with being a lesbian and being, having a love of, you know, having fallen in love with someone new and, and, and all those kinds of confusing and hard to deal with emotions, especially as a teenager, I think is this, the real struggle she's going through and finding that, you know, she's got to find out where she's comfortable, um, is, is her struggle in, in that story. I was going to say an interesting contrast is with Katie who hasn't really changed like to our knowledge. Um, we only know her through postcards and, like, the various knickknacks and memorabilias floating around. But she seems like she's the same person, but she's coming back to an incredibly changed home. Um, as, like, all the, the various secrets or whatever of her family are now sort of coming to light for her. So um, that's just an interesting contrast to everything else we've been talking about, which is people changing. For, for Katie, it, she hasn't changed to our knowledge. It's, it's home that has changed. Well, and I think the I think that the the difference there is that we can talk about all of these stories in terms of how our main characters are changing and how their arcs revolve kind of around redefining what home means. And Katie is not our main character. Like she's our player character, mm-hmm. but she's not the main character of that game. So I, I don't think that it's necessarily unfair to not consider how she like she doesn't have a character arc so we we experience the character arcs of other characters through her right but it's not really a flaw of the game that katie doesn't have oh yeah i'm, I'm not saying it's a flaw i'm saying it's an interesting Sorry, contrast. Flaw is, yeah no flaw is the wrong word um but yeah i do think that we in general have stories here that are define like the the arcs of the characters in these stories are defined by how they are defining home to themselves Mm -hmm. um i i feel we haven't explicitly uh labeled each of our general discussion questions but i do think that we have covered pretty much anything so does anybody have any final thoughts on uh oh i wanted to ask real quick before i forget Corey, yes. gone home has a sequel correct Ooh, um it does not have a sequel although there is another game that has recently come out like a, okay, a, so a, Tacoma, a spiritual sequel tacoma is the tacoma is like a space is... it's a space adventure in the in okay a, uh, um okay but it's like a space then... station and there's there's some similar kind of play styles i think in that game and I can okay, give you a sorry. whole bunch of lists of similar games too. <laughs> I love this. Game. I had heard I had heard of Tacoma in relation to Gone Home. I guess I had not realized that it wasn't actually 
connected to it. So I was I was going to ask, like, do any of these issues get resolved in the sequel? But clearly they don't if it's not I actually mean, a sequel. I can't say because I haven't played Tacoma. I mean, Sam could have just become a super cool astronaut, and that's the secret story. But That would mean... be pretty awesome, but also, I think, fairly unlikely. Yes. <laughs> All right, that's all the time that we have for this week. Corey, thank you so much for joining us in our discussion. Thank you for having me. And for assigning a video game, which is cool. It's our first video game. Yeah, no, for all for all my whining, I'm really pleased that we had a chance to incorporate that particular format uh, into the podcast. It's something that I have been thinking a lot about because I do like playing games, but it's always been sort of hard for me to envision like, oh, well, how do I like, how do we make this accessible to everybody? And I thought that this was a perfect, uh, perfect way to start us thinking about using that format more often. So yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I thought Gone Home was a good, you know, for, for the complaints that you had on the playing of it, I think it's a super accessible game. So I, you know, you don't have to be, you know, a Mass Effect level 60 Paragon to get to the last level and, and see the three endings or something like that and also that takes um, 40 yeah, hours sure. yeah, like, yeah. That, i thought this well, was a good fit and, it, so and i actually I and i actually i think that i will go because you linked to a you sent us a link to a youtube video of a playthrough which i do think that i'm going to investigate and just see if i see if i can absorb more of this or experience more of the story in a more I guess, relaxed way for myself by watching somebody else play because I'm absolutely willing to admit that that is a failing on my part and not the part of the game. <laughs> so I yes. will put that in our blog post so that if other people would like to check that out, they can. Uh, do you want people to be able to find you on the internet? And if so, where can they, uh, where can they do that? Um, I'm not really vocal on Twitter much, although I have one. I'm mostly tweeting at companies and, and getting and, you know, retweeting things that are interesting. Um, but my, I do have an Instagram, uh, Corey.Ruig. Um, a, a lot of pictures of my poodle um, and then just sometimes me. So, Is your poodle Bowser? It is Bowser. So many things make sense to me now. <laughs> Bowser's an adorable, uh, adorable giant horse dog bear. Yes. <laughs> All those things. Pete, Pete, where can people find you on the internet? Hey, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. And uh, yeah, basically those two things, politics and pop culture. Uh, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at MagicalMartha. You can find the show on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast. You can visit our home on the net, and I hope that you do. Um, homeworkpodcast.com? Yes. That's our, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a responsible blog runner. Uh, homeworkpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can email at, uh, us at uh, show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, please rate and review us on iTunes. That is how new people are able to discover uh, and start listening to our show. And we are always pro new listeners. Um, if you email us, leave us a comment on Facebook, Twitter, any comments, concerns, discussion questions, uh, follow-ups, uh, we will read them 
on our episode. Uh, and Pete, am I forgetting anything in my uh, rambling list of ways that you can get in touch with our podcast? No, but we should probably mention what we're talking about next week. Well, that's what I was going to do next now, wasn't it? Great. That's a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they pay us the big bus- bucks to host a podcast. Segways like I that. I was going to say, leave that in. <laughs> Don't cut that out. <laughs> uh, so on our next episode, we are going to be joined by my sister and podcast fan, Lizzie Bueller. We are going to be talking about ambition. Uh, this is a... Uh, a topic that I'm actually quite excited about, and part of that is because I have chosen to assign everybody for homework season or episodes, not whole seasons, haha, episode one, season one of Glee, and episode 22, season three, also of Glee. That is the pilot and the season three finale. Pete, what are you assigning? I'm assigning Hamilton. Uh, listen to it. I the think- sound. I was going to say, yeah. the soundtrack, right? I mean, You're not hey, going to make people spend hundreds of dollars to go see the show? If you can get out and go see the show, go do that. But all I'm asking for you is to listen to the soundtrack. And Lizzie's homework for the episode is the the 2007 film There Will Be Blood. I love that movie. <laughs> I haven't so seen excited. it yet. so You might not like it, but we can talk about yeah, that I next know. week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We will let you go. Uh, Have fun doing your homework.